Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue through our series, Reintroducing Jesus, which is a series to introduce you to Jesus if you're not familiar with Him, or to reintroduce Him to you if you are too familiar with Him. So, by way of just reminder, last week we worked through or experienced the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, the beginning of it, which is the moment where Jesus is transformed before his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They followed him up a mountain, and what they saw surprised them. The one who was the prophesied servant, who was going to suffer many things, the one who people called the false teaching rabbi who would eventually be rejected by his people, the one whom people described as a demon-possessed dissident who would be executed, reveals his true identity in all its fullness. He is the anointed king of God's kingdom. He is the incarnate Son of God, the one prophesied true Savior and Messiah. And even though he was a king who was going to die for his people, this moment of revelation of his glory in all its fullness revealed that the sacrificial death that he would experience was not accidental. It wasn't a sign of his weakness. It was very much a declaration of his willingness and of his meekness. This moment on the mountain, this powerful moment, was intended to be a monument for the disciples. It was to hold them steady when their faith grew difficult. To be reminded of this time with Jesus, unlike any other time. Truly, faith comes quite easily when we're atop the mountain with Jesus in all His fullness, which perhaps you've had those moments of grace where it's easy to believe, you're compelled to believe. But when you come down from the mountain, that is where faith is really tested, in the wilderness of the valley. So coming down the mountain now, the disciples along with Jesus, they go from basking in the presence of the fullness of the glory of the Son to dwelling in the reality of the daily grind of the brokenness of a world that is in sin. Now presumably the nine other disciples have been waiting for Jesus to come down the mountain. And as they come down, it seems like the first thing they hear is arguing amongst the crowds and amongst the disciples. The story is reminiscent of Moses again. We had said that prior to going up the mountain with the disciples, Matthew and Mark both say after six days they went up, which is a strange phrase. But it echoed back to when Moses went up to the mountain on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And after six days, the Lord met him there in the fullness of his glory. So when Moses, in Exodus 32, eventually comes down the mountain, he too has a similar experience that Jesus had. You see, after receiving the law, Moses descends down, and along with him is Joshua, who had been waiting about halfway up the mountain. He was his assistant. And as they're walking down, Joshua says, I hear noise of war in the camp. 
And Moses listens and says, that's not war. That sounds like a worship service. And as they get down to the people, they find very quickly that the leaders in charge, namely Aaron and those who were helping him, instead of leading the people to worship the one true God, they have led them into idolatry and immorality. So similarly, Jesus comes down the mountain, finds that the disciples who were supposed to be in charge have somewhat lost control. And even though his disciples didn't build some kind of demon god by throwing gold into the fire, what they have to encounter is a demon-possessed boy who's throwing himself into the fire. So you see these connections in this reminder of what was and what is. Now when Moses arrived and he saw the people in their rebellion engaged in this full-on dance party to a golden calf, he was angry. Very angry. And he threw down the tablets of stone that God had given him with the law written on it and broke them before they were even read. And then he takes the golden calf and he grinds it up into dust and he pretty much makes a milkshake out of it and makes him drink it. He was very upset. Now, Jesus does something quite different. And in Jesus' response, you see a real contrast. Perhaps a contrast between the law and grace. Two very important aspects of the redemptive story of God. But very different aspects in how we experience them. Reminding me of what the Apostle John wrote, which kind of reminds us of the transfiguration, reminds us of this moment in the very first chapter Beginning in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And He says, We have seen His glory, which they did. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And He continues in verse 16, And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. There's one. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus brings grace to sinners who cannot obey God's law. He shows grace to the faithless. Shows grace to those who even pretend to be faithful. Now in this passage, we see in many ways the heart of the Heavenly Father through Jesus as He deals with an earthly father. And more than that, He actually seems to father or parent this crowd and these disciples in the most gracious of ways, giving them grace and truth. He gives them truth in exposing what is unfaithful. And He gives them grace in encouraging those who have their doubts and then even equipping those who were supposed to be the faithful ones. So if we take a look at verse 14, we saw at first that He's going to expose those so-called faithful people. He says in verse 14, when they, had come, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, And the scribes arguing with them. 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you guys arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now some of the responses here are going to surprise us a little bit. This is what I love about the Gospel, Mark, in, in a slow reading of the Bible. Jesus arrives and he asks, first of all, what are you arguing about? And honestly, and this might be a side note, but I don't think it is. You've got scribes who are the Bible guys. They know everything there is about the Bible. And you've got the crowds and you've got the disciples. And there's some kind of argument going on. And I couldn't help but think or reflect upon how much argument is going on in the Christian world right now. People are debating, and I mean Christians with Christians about what the Bible says or doesn't say, what God should be doing or is not doing. It is mind-numbingly noisy. Quarreling. And who knows what they're, we don't know what exactly they're quarreling about. But I imagine because the disciples couldn't cast out this demon, the scribes are taking advantage of, oh, the Bible says this, and like, well, Jesus says this, and they're going back and forth. I love how Jesus redirects it away from the quarrel, though. See, on the mountain, they were listening to the Father's voice come and praise the Son. And now he's in the valley, and you hear a Father's voice again pleading for his Son. Now, you have all these layers of contrast happening. And so this Father speaks up in response to, what are you quarreling about? He says, well, I brought my Son who is oppressed by the Spirit, and your disciples couldn't help him, basically. Apparently, the disciples had been ministering without Jesus, which is not outside the bounds. They were supposed to be. I mean, good for them to not have to wait for Jesus to be there. They had been empowered two times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. And by that I mean they had been authorized and empowered by Jesus to cast out demons. In Mark 6, they were actually sent out to go cast out demons. And they returned, and it was assumed, or at least implied, that they had had some success. That they were able to cast out demons. But this time they cannot. They can't heal the boy. They don't even fully understand why. And so, in, upon hearing that, Jesus says something that might feel shocking. And he says, oh, faithless generation. Unbelieving generation. Now, as we read more, we see that his response seems to be directed less towards the disciples' ability and more perhaps towards the crowds or the scribes. And why would I say that? Well, in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is in Nazareth, that's where he grew up, 
he goes there and they rebuke him because they're like, well, they reject him basically because he is, they know who he is. You know, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And, but it says something else in that passage. It says that he could not do any mighty works because of their unbelief. Which is an interesting thing to think about. But it puts the responsibility on the people and their disbelief and not on Jesus and his ability. And I think that's what's happening here. What exactly are they not believing? What exactly are these people denying? Well, I think the crowds either disbelieve that God can work, and the Father's part of the crowd, that they disbelieve that God can actually work through these men. What does that mean? You ever been in a church where they go, well, I only like to hear this guy preach? I doubt it, right? No, that's not me. Like, oh, I can only hear God's word from this guy. Right? So they may be like this, like, well, they can't work through, they can work through Jesus, but not, the, not these guys. Or they are disbelieving that God can fix this particular problem because it's pretty bad. But they're disbelieving something, either something about the disciples and what God can do through that, or something about what God can do in this situation. Either way, Jesus says, you're disbelieving. A generation of people are disbelieving. And then Matthew says, you're not only faithless, you're twisted. Faithless and twisted. Now, twisted sounds much more negative. Like, you don't call things twisted that are like, well, you're kind of struggling. He's like, oh, you're twisted, man. That's like messed up. Okay, what, what would be faithless and twisted? Well, I believe that you become twisted, your faith becomes twisted when you begin to put more faith in yourself than you do in God. More of yourself to figure it out, more in your own preferences, in your own perspectives, and even in your own power than you do in God. That's a twisted faith. You don't really have faith in God, even if you talk about it, you sound spiritual, you actually have faith in yourself to fix it and figure it out. So how do we know this is what Jesus is saying? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. He says something else, right? He says, oh, faithless, twisted. But then he says more. He pretty much says, how long do I got to put up with you? I love that Jesus says that. Because it just makes him real. Like We kind of think like Jesus is, you know, walking around half floating all the time, never saying anything mean, never getting irritated. Like being irritated isn't sinful. And he's like, how long do I got to put up with you? And that's not just him complaining. It's actually him lamenting. He is lamenting. And again, it echoes back to the Old Testament and Moses again. So let me give you this context. Moses comes down off the mountain and he leads the people to the edge of the promised land. And you're like, no, they wandered out for 40 years. Not yet. They went to the edge of the promised land first, and then they sent in 12 spies. And if you've been in Sunday school, you knew the song, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Woo! Remember that song? Maybe you don't. Okay, it's a great song. But 10 spies came out of the land after looking at the land that God said, this is your land, I'm giving it to you. They come out and they go, it's really good land full of really big people, and we can't take it, it's too much. And two of the spies go, it's ours. 
Caleb and Joshua. Oh, it's ours. God wants us to have it. It's rad. The ten spies are like, no, it's bad. And they follow the ten. Not only that, they're like, what did you do, Moses? You, you bring us out here to kill us? We need new leadership. We want to go back to Egypt, and it, everything breaks loose. And God gets pretty upset. In fact, to Moses, he says this after being weary of dealing with rebellious people. This is right after that moment in Numbers 14. It says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Does that not sound like Jesus? He says, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done among them. Could Jesus not say that same thing? I have done all these signs to prove who I am. How long are you not going to believe me? To what he's saying. In the Old Testament, the people despised God, meaning they didn't believe in the plain truth of God's word. Why do I say it that way? The spies came out. God had already said, this land is yours. I know these peoples are all there. I'm going to wipe them out before you. Just get going. And they come out of the land like, all these peoples are there. We can't do it. And then they start sounding very spiritual and faithful. because They say, we're going to die and our children will die. Well, who's going to argue with that, right? Oh, to protect the children. That's what we need to do. So protecting your children is the justification you're going to use for disobeying the word of God. It sounds spiritual. It sounds faithful. It sounds like legit. But it's unfaithful. They are trusting in their own perceptions, in their own imaginations, in their own intellect, in their own everything, rather than the plain Simple word of God. And God exposes that generation and kills them all in the wilderness and brings in the kids who are going to be killed generation to go conquer the land. Those who sound spiritual, and there's a lot of people sounding spiritual today, a lot of people sounding faithful, but I would argue that many of them, though sound spiritual and faithful, are unbiblical and therefore unfaithful. And so Jesus exposes. You guys, especially the scribes, you guys got all the words right, but you got this all wrong. And then he continues, and he turns the conversation away from old faithless to this dad. And I think he intends to encourage this dad. Beginning in verse 20, he says this, they brought the boy to Jesus and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Remember that. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. Exclamation point, actually. If you can. If you can, all things are possible. All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
What a powerful passage, but I would argue kind of a convicting one. So it's both encouraging and convicting, which is probably the right place we need to be. So this conversation with the dad is not found in Matthew's record. It's just in Mark. Matthew kind of focuses more on the miracle, focuses maybe a little more on the faithlessness of the crowd, and Mark pushes it towards the faith of this dad. And Jesus engages the father, which I think is glorious. He asks the father questions. And the questions he asks are important because it reveals, in many ways, the helpless and hopeless situation that this is. This is not some kid that was kicked in the head by a camel last week. It's a kid that's been struggling from childhood and struggling in the worst ways. And so this is not the first time the father has probably sought help. He is desperate for help. It is an impossible situation, a situation that no one can understand. Oh, he got kicked in the camel. That makes it. No, we don't know why this happened. We don't know how this happened, and no one knows how to fix it. And so the father says, if you can do anything, please help. And so the father has some faith. He recognizes Jesus' power. And he appeals to his compassion. He knows he doesn't doesn't deserve anything, but he appeals, if you can do anything, And so Jesus turns the question around a little bit, and I think that he does this so he can teach this man and us something about faith. It's it's easy to speak the words of faith. And I'm not saying that to somehow criticize this dad. I think all of us, it's easy to say, I believe in this. But when suffering comes into your life, and I mean suffering that you cannot control, especially suffering in someone you love that you cannot control, that is when faith is truly tested. What you truly believe. And this man's request, as all requests like it, are not, it's not about the ability of Jesus. It has something to do with the faith of the one who is requesting it. Because faith, when we talk about faith, Pure faith, good faith, strong faith. Faith sets no limits on the power of God. Like, faith isn't realism. You heard that phrase? I'm just being realistic. Then you're not being faithful. We believe in the God of the resurrection. That ain't real realistic. So, when we talk about faith, it's like God can do anything. He can do anything. Am I willing to trust Him with all things? Am I willing to submit to His will even though it doesn't make sense to me? This problem I have seems mountainous. It's huge. Is it too big for God's power? So, this man is coming to Jesus with a mountain-sized problem And he knows that Jesus can solve this mountain-sized problem, and he appeals to his compassion to do it. I think we would all do well to read the prophet Jeremiah a little bit more. 
And Jeremiah writes this in chapter 32, verse 17 of his prophecy. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Take a Sharpie and write that on your mirror at home in the bathroom. Nothing is too hard for you. Now on the surface, as this man says, like, well, if you can, Jesus' response sounds like he's offended a little bit. <gasps> if you can. If. <laughs> like, it, that's what it feels like. And then he says something that... Um, seems to offend us. All things are possible for one who believes. So if we read it wrongly, it's like, if I can, well, if you believe. Like, ooh, it just is difficult. And if misunderstood, this passage is not just difficult, it's dangerous. And by that I mean this. Wrongly understood, this kind of passage could lead someone to really despair when they're not experiencing whatever healing or whatever help that they requested because they think they lack belief or they lack enough faith. That could be the most discouraging thing in the world. You just don't believe enough. You just don't have faith enough. That comes from things like the word faith movement which is an unbiblical and wicked movement. The word faith movement preaches a false Jesus and a false gospel. And what does it do? It emphasizes the power of the individual Christian's faith to control their own future through positive acts, positive words, positive thinking. And in this particular view, which is unbiblical and unhelpful, things like wealth, Obtaining it or avoiding things like suffering is a direct result of that person's faith. If you're prosperous, that means you are faithful. If you're not prosperous, unfaithful. If you're healthy, faithful. If you're sick, unfaithful. Talk about despair. So Jesus does say here, like, look, anything is possible. God's power is not limited, but he doesn't say that everything is probable, like it's going to happen. And I think rather than exposing this man's faithlessness, or even guaranteeing that he's going to do exactly what he wants, I think Jesus, if you go a little bit deeper, is intending to shift this man's hope away from just healing his boy and onto trusting Jesus with everything. He is encouraging this. He's encouraging this man to hope for more than the help he asks for. To hope for more than the help he asks for. Because what we ask for, we think that's the ultimate. We think that's what we need. And it doesn't mean God won't answer it, but God actually wants to give you more. Than that. The writer of Hebrews connects faith and hope. He says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Probably heard that before, right? Faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for. So I heard a great teacher explain kind of Christian hope in three basic parts. First, Christian hope, unlike any other hope, it's expressing your deepest desires that you long for to God. He wants to hear them. What do you want? In this case, the Father. Help my son. Heal my son. Please. Like We express it. That longing we have. That painful longing we have. And then there's another part of Christian hope. And that is waiting. Expecting though. Expecting God to come through. God can come through should He want to. When He wants to, I'm going to expect Him to. I desire this. I want this. But then the third part of Christian hope is what? It's wrestling with God. It's waiting, not for it to come to pass, but for Him to come close. It is wrestling with Him and wrestling with, okay, I know you're a father who loves me, but this hasn't unpacked or come at the time or the way I thought. How do I? And all that does is draw you closer to God. Because he knows your desires and you are expecting him to act as the God of the resurrection. And he hasn't acted yet or done what you want. And so you're wrestling with him. Ultimately, he wants you to desire him more than it. But I do believe, as Psalm 27 says, that we aren't just to hope for time with God in eternity. That's a good thing. But the psalmist says, I believe, I believe I'm going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that God's goodness is here and now and can be experienced here and now and not just then. Then it's going to be in its fullness. Then it's going to be awesome. But I believe now in the land of the living, so I will wait for the Lord. I'll be strong and I'll let my heart take courage. But I'm going to wait for the Lord and talk to the Lord and wrestle with the Lord and know the Lord. That's what he wants his dad to do. And so the father hears him and responds to Jesus, I believe! I believe all things are possible. I believe! And then he says, help my unbelief. Which I think is a beautiful statement and an honest one. Because even the strongest believers have sprinkles of discouragement and unbelief. We have at the same time, in somewhat of a paradox, conviction. I know who God is, and yet I doubt. I struggle. I wrestle. The question is not whether we have doubts. We all do. We all have belief and doubt at the same time. Sometimes over different things. Struggles. Lord, I know you're sovereign, but how is this working with that? I know you love me, but this hurts. And you have that wrestling. So the question isn't whether you have doubts. They're going to come. If you don't ever have doubts, I don't believe you. I just don't. So the question isn't whether you have doubts. The question is what do you do with them? Because the father here says, I believe, 
And then he says, help Jesus my unbelief. He takes it to Jesus. He doesn't just go away in his Google search and live in the land of skepticism. I believe, but whatever. He takes it to the Lord. He draws closer to the Lord. That's the difference between the faithful and the unfaithful. For the faithful, their doubts actually draw them closer to the Lord while the unfaithful draw them away. Doubts will come. What do you do with them? And he encourages this man by drawing closer to him and not pushing him away. He doesn't need to know the answers to those questions. He already knows. He wants to draw out his faith. Well, the last thing he does is have a conversation with his disciples. In verses 25 to 29, it says, When Jesus saw that the crowd was coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And we'd enter the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's get personal here. Now the authority and power of Jesus is undeniable, right? He's like, demon out, boom, out, out forever, powerful. He rebukes the unclean spirit. The boy is released, but then he falls down as if dead. It's possible he actually was dead. And Jesus touches him as he has touched others, and it says he arose. And that clearly foreshadows Christ's own death and resurrection that is soon to come, and he just spoke about in Mark chapter 8. But the disciples, after they get Jesus privately in a home, are like, why why couldn't we do that? Like, you just did it, just like we did. We said, demon, get out, and nothing happened, and you do it, and it works, like, What did we screw up? What did we do wrong? And Jesus says something I think is actually quite fascinating. He says, there is something unique about this kind. He seems to imply that there are some situations, some sins, some struggles, some spirits that are more difficult to battle than others. We go, oh, sin is sin is sin. It's not. It's certainly all unrighteous in the eyes of God. But there are struggles and battles that are more difficult than others. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in response to that same question, like, why couldn't we do this? He actually gets very specific with the disciples, and he said, oh, it's because of your little faith. Because of your little faith, that's why. So wait, you have two two answers here that seem to be a little different. Mark, most likely writing for Peter, either remembers or understands the statement differently or they combine together to give us this picture. Matthew says, well, the problem is faith, and Mark says the problem is prayer. Perhaps those two are more connected than we think. Could it be that prayer is actually part of the remedy to little faith, especially in the midst of really big problems? 
See, when Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew that they have little faith, it's very possible that he's telling them that all their anxiety and the fears and the doubts and the failures and the powerlessness that they feel, all of that perhaps is connected with the little amount of prayer they have in their life. And if prayer is much more than just venting your feelings and thoughts to God or making requests to Him, but actually communing with God, we must all challenge ourselves and reflect and go, what do I, who do I spend most of my time communing with? Because it's possible, and I'm not saying that every bit of anxiety and all those things are going to be diminished if this is, but as in this particular moment in time, we experience confusion and anxiety and all these things that trouble us, it's certainly possible that our lack of communion with God is making things worse. Now, prayer often is viewed as the fruit of faith, and Jesus, I think, seems to indicate it actually produces it as well. It increases our faith. It grows our faith. We pray when we doubt. We go to God with our doubts so that God can help us believe truth about Him. That He is who He says He is, right? If you don't commune with God with your doubts, you look at our world and you go, this place is messed up. I wonder if God's really sovereign. What do you do with that? You go to God and He reminds you and He comforts you and He instructs you. We pray in the storm, not just so the storm will go away. We pray to be reminded that God is present with us. We pray when we begin to question Jesus' commands. Like, is that really what Jesus says? Is that really what He expects from us? Yeah. But when we begin to doubt, we pray so that He can remind us that His commands are trustworthy. We pray when we are confused about what God is doing. And if you aren't confused about what God is doing on occasion, I don't know where you're looking. But we pray so that we can trust and believe that He is doing something despite what we can see more than we could ever think or imagine. That even if He told us, we wouldn't believe Him. That's why we pray. We pray to hope. We pray to endure, we pray to enjoy, we pray to have peace. A commitment to pray, I believe, really just reveals the disposition of one's heart. It's where you acknowledge, like, I refuse, not just like, I'm not, I refuse to trust in myself. I refuse to hope in myself. I'm going to trust and hope in God. I don't know anything but prayer that communicates that more. Whether you journal your prayers or get on your knees in a dark closet prayer or you drive and you pray, whatever, prayer. Because prayer is not primarily, although it does affect, it's not primarily about changing circumstances. It's about changing us in the midst of circumstances. And so if you are struggling with anxiety and doubts and confusion right now, which I am a little bit. 
If you're not, like, I don't know what world you're living in. I'm afraid to read the news half the time of something new that happened. Like, goodness gracious. What's the solution? Well, to believe in God enough to pray a little more than you do. Now, let me just make it a little more personal to you. See, the enemy and our flesh and the world want more than anything for you to trust yourself. And I wonder if we're doing a good job of that in the worst way. As you look at all these things that are easily confusing, look at these things that are easy to get upset about and anxious about, how often has your response to somebody as the solution or their response to you as to how to deal with it been, you should pray? Is that the first thing we say? What do we say? You know what? You should listen to this podcast. You should watch this video. You should read this blog. You know what that is? As our natural first and most frequent response, you should look to men, trust men, think about it, dwell. How about pray? What a great response that would be for us to help our faith increase that we might trust and hope in God more than we trust in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Just pray. You see, the enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, Peter wrote this, looking for someone to devour. You know how he devours us? He convinces us to trust ourselves in pride. Because the next thing that is said by Peter, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and cast your cares upon him because he loves you. At the bottom of this mountain, you know what these disciples and these crowds were doing? They were basically telling themselves, we can do it on our own. The disciples had little faith in Jesus and a lot of faith in themselves, and I fear we struggle with the same thing. Well, as we close, the end of the passage in Matthew adds another little piece to it. And he says this, which I'm sure you've heard before. If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you, right? Just a faith of a mustard seed. Well, what if we just put prayer in there? If you had prayer like a mustard seed, just a little bit. Not even a lot. You know, in James 5, it says, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It doesn't say the hands of a righteous man, the mind of a righteous man. The words of a righteous man, it says, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Man, if we had a little more prayer, how many of the mountains that seem so mountainous right now would look like small hills? All we need is a seed, just a little teeny seed of genuine faith or genuine prayer. And this is the only way you'll get there. Ready? True faith like that, it's acknowledging something about yourself that's really hard. You're not as strong or smart as you think you are. That there's anxiety you have and struggles you have in believing and uncertainty in what you see 
and inability to fix it, that you are powerless and inadequate, and that's really hard for people to admit. But if you have the courage to admit that because you actually believe that, that will drive you to your knees in prayer. Because weakness is the path to grace. I'll close with what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12. You've probably heard this before as well. He had a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he's like, come on, this stinks. I don't like this. It hurts. It hinders me. And this is what Jesus said to him. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We have a world right now full of people who are pretending to be stronger than they are and smarter than they are. And everyone has the answer and everyone thinks, wants to prove that they're the best. It's all a path to pride. And I would encourage us all as an effort to admit that we are powerless to basically talk less and pray more. Quite simple. Which is really depend upon yourself less and depend upon Jesus more. Let's pray.